Hello and welcome to another episode of Thought Architecture. My name is Justin and I'm going to take you down this rabbit hole as we go. So, as I say, the, the purpose of this is really this idea of creating solid thought architecture. So, it's the idea of looking at things and, and deciding on whether or not to keep these things or throw them away, you know. Um, the reason for this is because the way that we structure information usually leads us to feel more or less of certain emotions and as a result it has more or less of an impact in our lives in a positive or a negative way but the idea is that the way that we structure information in our heads can ultimately lead to us making huge contributions to you know the people that we value the lives of others um, or huge detractions from that type of thing. So in saying all of this, um, what I wanted to introduce you today to was something that I reacted to a long time ago. So on YouTube, there is a channel called The School of Life. And there's one video in particular that I, I decided at this point in time in my life, I was just consuming all their videos. I thought their videos were great. And then I watched this video and there was something in me that I couldn't articulate that really struck a nerve that I didn't like about it. Okay, so I'll attach the video to the uh, to the notes below. So if you subscribe to thoughtarchitecture.substack.com, you'll you'll see it obviously. Um, but the idea is, uh, you know, if you just want to go to YouTube, it's going to be School of Life, and the name of it is uh, Why Humanity Destroyed Itself. Okay, so this was published three years ago, and I just. I stopped listening to them at this point and I started like looking for the criticisms. Well, what are the criticisms of School of Life? And I decided that I actually, I, I agreed with some of their bigger kind of points, which is to make people think or challenge themselves. Um, but some of their finer points, I find them lacking the, the, the actual architecture of thought. Okay, so um, in this video, this person proposed that humanity will destroy itself because of three valid points, okay? Now, the thing is, is that if you understand these points according to the, the framing that's presented, then of course you're going to go with it. And you'd be like, yeah, yeah, you know what? Yeah. But it's got to be framed in that way. Otherwise, it kind of falls apart. And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to piece it together. I'm going to show you the frames that they use. And I'm going to show you the frame that I use, okay? So the frame that they use is that genetically inside us we have certain instincts okay and these instincts are straight away this this inherent idea of tribalism and it tends to be a very visual tribalism so if you can see that someone belongs to your particular ethnic tribe you know visually speaking you you would say this person looks like me therefore you have a huge um genetic empathy for that person and a need to want to create a tribe with them and this is very this is very true absolutely we can measure a person's responses to this but as i've mentioned before there was a very a great book called the social brain by richard crisp and in this he also talks about this as a lazy inference a very lazy inference you know, sociologists and social psychologists aren't necessarily held up to the same scientific standards as other STEM subjects. And the more, you know, like psychology was once called a soft science, but the more we can start to measure the brain, the more we start to see, actually it's a hard science, we can get some hard data on it. 
So therefore, we need to start scrutinizing it like hard data. But, uh, you know, like let's talk about data another day because I still have issues with how data is framed anyway and how a lot of researchers are very short-sighted in their data um, investigations, especially as someone who's a linguist by trade. You know, my master's is in applied linguistics and I can tell you very, very certainly that um, a lot of people doing the research out there have had no experience, A, learning a language or B, in a classroom. And so the research questions that they ask are actually superfluous and we don't really need, let's say, 90% of the research that's out there. Ah, rant over. No, let's get back to the original rant. Okay, so circling back around, we've got this idea that um, Richard Cripps mentions in his book that people make these inferences. The studies that were done were the studies where people actually identified race. And so you had this idea of uh, a type of test that was being done where their heart rates and stress were being measured based on showing them photos of people um, of different races, like let's say having a gun next to them or you know looking mean or whatever the case may be. And people responded poorly to other races and people responded as a whole pretty positively to all these, you know, their own race. And so, you know, this, this idea is perpetuated that, oh, we identify based on race. But it's actually not true. And the psychology that comes in as well has got to do with, um, you know, if you've watched The Social Dilemma, when children see themselves in a mirror and what they see in the mirror doesn't match the standard of beauty that they see on such a regular basis, it starts to affect a lot of uh, their confidence, their self-esteem, etc., and so what it is that I'm proposing, you might be like, well, Justin, that all sounds pretty reasonable. You know, how are these people wrong if this is the case? And it comes back to the brain is a muscle. And so what you actively do regularly is what it's going to pattern. And so if you see people of a certain race all the time, majority, and other, other races, let's say, or other um, ideas of beauty, other standards of beauty are outside of that, then you're going to identify with the one that you practice the most. So if you are raised in a multicultural society, then it, you're going to appreciate all forms of beauty. You're going to start to feel empathy for all kinds of people. You're not necessarily just going to empathize with people of your own race. It's got to do with the famili familiarity muscle, how often you practice that. And so the more you start to inject yourself into um, especially surface level uh, dis dis distinctions of ethnicity and saying like, well, I'm going to hang out with people who aren't from my ethnic group. I'm going to hang out with people who don't look like me, you know, a range of people who don't like me. And specifically, I'm also going to like try to appreciate beauty that's not necessarily the type of beauty that uh, that I you know, have been raised with or that I think is familiar to me. So I, I still remember growing up and, you know, the blonde with, the, you know, like big boobs and, you know, long legs. And like that was the beauty standard. And then as I grew older, the beauty standard evolved into the more kind of like Latina beauty standard where it's like the huge badonkadonk. Thank you, Disney, for that type of thing, you know. Um, and beauty standards change. And that's the whole point. You know, and one of the things that I always enjoyed was a beauty standard that was a little bit, you know, less, uh, let's say, fragile. 
you know, so a woman who could, um, you know, wear a dress as well as throw a hard punch or something like that, be vulnerable as well as. And I always loved that type of beauty standard, you know, um, the idea that um, the beauty standards and definitely the familiar, uh, the familiar familiarization of like beauty in Disney movies that was presented where a woman needs rescuing by a man versus and this is not a modern thing as well by the way this little side rant uh the wizard of oz dorothy and the wizard of oz uh, i remember reading an article about this the idea that she is the epitome of a strong person not a strong woman a strong person that their skills are not necessarily what makes them strong but their ability to unite people and work as a group and achieve group goals and individual goals with the help of the group is what makes her strong and I like that idea. So let's loop back. Hatred of foreigners. Yes, maybe you could judge that. But a lot of it, especially for the future of humanity, we're going on this idea of we need to get past surface level judgments about people. And this whole idea of don't judge a book by its cover. Well, biologically, we are because of how familiar we are with certain covers and other covers, how rare it is for us to see them therefore we don't empathize so we need to be taught to identify with people in different ways below surface ethnicities and preferences more along the lines of what are known as uh, let's say second step emotions you know a lot of the time whatever emotions we can identify with animals these are like these base emotions but emotions where it's like pride and disappointment and rejection and things like that help us to deal with people a lot more so we can share and empathize with people when they feel proud that a child is achieving or where they feel loss because let's say they've you know like they suffered a great loss well those types of moments is how we can actually identify with people oh they are feeling something that i've felt too and that's a greater way to connect with people not based on our differences but really based on what unites us so coming back to this video the other two things were short-term thinking and wishful thinking and short-term thinking was this idea of oh i know that global climate change is happening but you know fine i can't see the polar ice caps melting so i'm not going to make a big change in my life anyway and that's just totally wrong as well where the brain doesn't necessarily make a decision on short-term and long-term thinking the brain makes decisions based on survival, environment, habitat, things like that, as well as values. And so something like this is a bigger topic than I'm going to go into in this particular audio. But the idea is that it's, um, it's not just, oh, we're short-term thinkers. No, we can, we can teach ourselves to be strategic thinkers. And by exposing ourselves to controlled stresses and finding out what our, our uh, comfortable lifestyle is, we don't need more than that and therefore it's not this idea of like give me more give me more give me more but very simply put it's just this idea of we haven't figured out how to unify people around this particular goal or around particular change and a lot of the time you know companies are more responsible than an individual is institutions and systems are things that need to change a lot more than an individual choice so think about it like this uh, if the government mandated that certain light bulbs are the only light bulbs that can be used because other light bulbs are no good for the environment. If a government mandates it, that means that shops, institutions, systems need to produce more of one light bulb and sell 
fewer, if any, of another light bulb, which means that straight away we'll get that kind of change that we're looking for. Now, that's not necessarily anything that's out of the, the wheelhouse of what the government already does. And I'm not talking about an American government, a British government. I'm talking about any government does this anyway. They will regulate products in accordance with what their goals are. The government itself, the companies themselves, these have got greater uh, powers in this type of thing. So short-term thinking on parts of humans, not necessarily true. It's more parts of institutions, which is bigger than an individual person. And again, the last one is wishful thinking. The idea that we respond to negative events, let's say by, you know, running into fantasies, by daydreaming. You know, we know what the science is, but the science is overridden. All of these points that this, um, this video was based on, uh, as much as I can bring it up, is based on something called veneer theory. And these are, uh, this is the perspective of a lot of the biologists, primatologists. They come with this point of view of like humans and humanity by describing what we call, you know, what they call the inner ape. This, uh, a concept that um, rejects human mor morality, saying that it's just like an extra cultural overlay, uh, a thin veneer that hides a very selfish and brutish nature. Now, if you look at the evolution of the brain and, and what uh, evolution of biology talks about, it's this idea that we've got three layers to the brain and each layer you can see in other animals around us, like the reptilian brain is very much like fight or flight only. It's this instinctual brain. It's just switch on or switch off, switch on and switch off. And built on top of that is a system that overrides that and adds complexity, which is the mammalian brain. It's a type of brain that we can find in most mammals, dogs and cats and things like that, where we can see um, modifications on this, upgrades in the software and the hardware. And then on top of that, do we have, you know, the frontal lobe, the neocortex, the, the, the layer that goes um, a lot bigger, a lot stronger in humans. And we are the only ones to have the thickness, the size, etc., of this particular um, brain development. And that means that our ability to override all these things, all these cultural overlays, is greater than any other animal. Greater. And so veneer theory says that, well, the bottom layer is the one that actually takes control more often than not. And... I think that this is a very simple way to understand it. So let me know what you think in, in, the, in the comments or send me a message. But the truth is, is that I don't agree with this. I don't agree that, you know, we have this selfish, brutish nature. Uh, genetically versus uh, um, our environmental nurture, we can see that when we talk about genetics, when we talk about what's programmed into our DNA, there's a lot of stuff that adds up, but our behavior is the thing that actually has more control. Our environment will dictate our behavior a lot more than anything else, especially in the first 25 years of our life, where we're still victim to a lot of things happening to us rather than making decisions of what we want to happen, what we want to take control of. So I do not agree with this. I think that there is a critical period for a lot of people to be exposed to certain ideas um, but we can still modify it after that. We can still build. It just takes a lot of time. That's all. So there is this idea that we need to take a lot of responsibility for people who are between the ages of 0 and 25. 
If you don't take responsibility for a child, they are going to do stupid things and probably play in traffic and, you know, set stuff on fire and potentially hurt themselves. You know, teenagers as well have psycho tendencies to, to be more important and to matter more and to manipulate people. And the empathy is a lot lower in teenagers, statistically speaking. But that doesn't mean that teenagers are always like that and are always assholes. You do have teenagers who are fantastic people anyway, but 99% of them will remedy that by the time they hit 25 and above, they have full working capacity of their brains. And so we see this change over time. I do not agree with veneer theory in a major way. And an idea for you to think about is also, if you look at um, you know, our closest relatives are going to be bonobos, chimps, gorillas. If you look at the great apes that are out there, um, look at how they work in their structure, in their societies. Really look at it. They're, the alpha male that everyone talks about is like, oh, it's big and strong. Not true. The alpha male actually is the one that brings more security and protection to the others. And so very simply put, stops the fights, not starts the fights. And if you go even deeper into that type of research, you can find that a lot of the time there are these pacts for power as well. You know, that there's a lot of diplomacy and negotiation. And ultimately, the whole goal of it is just to have stronger systems of relationships in that group so that they can actually manage and live successfully. So even with... You know, these selfish and brutish apes, you actually have got, you know, diplomacy, working together, teamwork, relationships, care. And that's very important to mention. And so I think let me drive this all home um, with a perfect example. So, um, oh, uh, you know, before I do this, let me talk about this idea that even then we can debate instincts and what exactly is an instinct. You know, veneer theory talks about humans will give into their base urges, their base instincts. Well, you know, the definition of instinct is up for debate here. Like is an instinct the fact that our first response to something and should we inhibit it? Well, part of the, the executive functioning of the prefrontal lobe is to inhibit behavior, i.e. to hold your tongue instead of swearing at someone or whatever. Um, whatever the case may be, we actually have a muscle in the brain to inhibit things. And if we're not utilizing that, we're actually then, I would argue, giving into our instincts rather than actually utilizing a particular muscle that's, that's been given to us to override those instincts, to notice when something is dangerous or it's a trap or whatever the case may be, or to suspect something. You know, it was given to us not necessarily so that we could be better or more evolved, but because it's to keep us alive. It's that simple. So um, the other concept of instincts is, for example, would you say that our instincts are our base urges? Like we see someone we're attracted to, we just want to take them there and then versus, you know, uh, be polite about it. And, you know, the veneer is above that or um, the, the concept of instincts being what's coded into us that we don't have to learn. For example, Babies will cry when they are in the dark, when they sense that they're, they are not with another person. They will cry to draw attention to themselves. This is one of the, uh, the concepts of instincts that's hard-coded into us. It's, it's, an, it's a reflex that we have absolutely con no control over. So another one would be the flinch response. Uh, fight, flight, or freeze. 
it would be the mammalian dive reflex. These are instincts, not necessarily the idea of like, well, I don't like you. My first reaction is to punch you. And so what is an instinct? Okay, but anyway, getting away from that. If you have heard of a book, a very famous book called Lord of the Flies, very interesting 1954 novel, novel, novel. It's a novel that won a Nobel Prize, okay? A group of British boys shipwrecked on an uninhabited island and they try and govern themselves and basically three of the original um, group or die, they're, they're, they kill each other, you know, different things happen. And it's basically the idea that they, um, they unravel, they devolve, you know, when they don't have society around them, reinforcing certain things, you know, the theme is very, very much um, human impulses versus civilization, okay? Living by rules peacefully and harmoniously versus the will to power. Um, and, the thing is, is you've got to remember that you've got to come out, out, out of at this from the context. The author was coming from 1954, boys that were teenagers after World War II and asking, could something like World War II happen again? And is it in us to do this type of thing? That's what this person was asking about. Not commenting necessarily from a scientific perspective, but just from a curiosity perspective. So if only there were a real case of this where we could see that, like what would happen if this were the case? Well, surprise, surprise, there was actually a real life Lord of the Flies event that happened to six boys that were shipwrecked on an island for 15 months. 15 months. This was on an island in 1965. These boys were from a Polynesian country called Tonga. Um... Uh, it's a Polynesian, uh, yeah, Polynesian sovereign state, and they stole a, a fishing boats and they uh, they were trying to make their way, I think, to New Zealand because they just wanted to escape Catholic school. They hated Catholic school, so what they did, uh, they got shipwrecked, fifteen months, and they actually not not only did they survive and thrive, come back very well nourished, you know, uh, no bones broke. Sorry, one one boy broke his bones, but the others set the bone, healed it, etc. They found a way to live. They made a pact. Um, and actually, they came out and they thrived. They didn't rip each other to pieces. Now, you might be saying, well, this is one case. Well, yes, it is one case where the eldest child was 16. The youngest was 13. There were all the opportunities for abuse. But what they did was they, they started to, um, you know, live together in in certain ways where they created like work structures and they cared for each other and they they were basically greater than the sum of all their parts they weren't just six boys together they were a team a community a group and that's pretty much what came out of this circumstance of an isolated lab environment of what would happen if now can we replicate these results yeah we could probably it would be very unethical to do it but we can um, but we don't need to. It's the idea of, are we debating what are humans? What's the base urge of humans? Is it to go down to these instincts or is it to try and be part of something bigger? And if that's the case, again, this video is wrong, largely wrong about a lot of things. The structural framework that they're approaching it with 
is incorrect. And it's actually damaging to think like this because it means that you believe that we're all not, number one, we're not worth any kind of redemption. Someone, if someone backstabs you, oh, you're seeing their true colors now rather than, oh, they just made a mistake. They literally made a mistake, they messed up, and it's worth trying to reintegrate them into the group because that would actually be better for them. Train them up in the way that's more valuable to the group rather than casting them out of the group. Because ultimately, then you're going to create an enemy of the group. So once again, it comes back to if you believe this, you'll change your behavior to other people. And I do believe this video to be damaging. So please watch the video. Tell me what you think. Let me know what you think. Um, I'm very much a realist and looking at all the science and all the data that I can see and constructing a, a good thought pattern around this means that if we, if we have the incentive, if we have the right environment and the right elements, we can be something phenomenal. Humans can be amazing. And at the moment, I don't see these elements very readily in life, in corporate structures, government structures, community structures. You know, you can, you can see it here and there, but people normally stumble upon it by luck rather than anything else. And I'd really like to nail it down. Hugely invite you to read the books, The Culture Code um, by Daniel Coyle. I think he, he nails quite a lot of good things in there, good examples of what good group culture look like. Um, and then Richard Crisp's The Social, Social Brain. I really like that, uh, that book, the way they present information. It's very clear. And it's very easy to see his criticisms of other people's architecture around these things. Um, but make up your mind for yourself. And if you have any um, comments, so uh, let, me, let me suggest two possible ways that you can comment or question on this. Number one is that you wonder how this type of idea connects with other ideas that we've mentioned. Okay, If there's any conflicts that you're picking up, um, anything that you're like, wait a minute, but you said this and now you're saying this. Is that a conflict? Is that a, how does that work together? So that's, that's one way that you can question or comment. The second way that questions and comments could come up is the idea that you completely disagree. You're like, nope, I believe this. You've presented this information. You are missing this piece or you have not addressed this piece. So please, I invite these types of questions, comments, uh, and anything else as well. Um, but for, for now, that's it. The idea of looking at some of this information presented out there on tribalism and what is my number one uh, principle about the human operating system. The way that we function is that no man is an island. No woman is an island. And so I've modified that John Donne and paraphrased it to say no one is an island unto themselves. Hope you have a fantastic day. Cheers.